Section 5 of Whispering Tunnels by Stephen Bagby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Part 5. It was well into the following morning when Cresson stepped on to the station platform in Moncourt. He found little John waiting with a carriage, and together they drove to the inn. The scientist cautioned the younger man that a short nap might be necessary before undertaking the work laid out that evening. Crescent awoke in the late afternoon to find Little John studying a map of the fortress and the known portion of the tunnels. Little John, laying the map aside, gave details of his plan. He explained that he would begin work that night in the haunted guest chamber of the fort, alone, because he did not wish to expose anyone else to danger. Crescent objected vigorously, declaring that he would take chance for chance with the scientist. Little John glanced at him admiringly. That's what I call grit, he said slowly. Not one man in a thousand would go back into that room after an experience such as yours. It was useless to attempt dissuasion, and Little John turned the subject as they walked to Vaux in the waning light of the afternoon. The rays of the sinking sun bathed a desolate scene of pitted hills and scarred ravines, which were crowned by the fortress of Vaux, lighting the low, rakish ramparts a weird red enhancing the blackness of their shadows. Fillets met them a short distance from the entrance, and the three remained in discussion several minutes before going on. The major seemed paler, more anxious and thinner, it seemed to Cresson, than when they had seen each other last. They listened closely as Little John pointed out the necessity of keeping his and Cresson's arrival as nearly secret as possible. The two dined with Fillets that evening, apart from the others, the major, in a low voice, told them that two men had died, and three others were hopelessly insane of terror over unseen things within the past week. These tragedies took place on different nights, he said, but on each those in the fortress had plainly heard the whisper. The whisper of the tunnels, monsieur, said the major, his face ashen. Falaise was intensely interested in the experiment but declared that not all of the world's gold could persuade him to spend a night in the guest chamber, even with others. It was plain that the Major's experience during his two years' assignment to the garrison command had shaken him tragically. He bore up only because of the expected transfer, a removal from Vaux to a place where there were neither tunnels nor whispers. Little John again endeavored to show Cresson the danger that awaited anyone except a trained psychic in coping with unseen forces. The younger man, however, refused to be swayed by this argument. Many of these tunnels were built before Napoleon's time, said the scientist, when black magic raged in portions of Europe. Today there are persons in France, adept in the art of producing innate intelligences more terrible than the monster created in the story of Frankenstein. These whispering tunnels and mysterious deaths and insanity among men of the fort may be due to some curse placed on its members by a vengeful sorcerer long ago, one who was in some way harmed in this place. Such curses may rage for hundreds of years after the death of him who called them into being unless dispelled by a powerful exorcist. Dr. Littlejohn's face grew grave as he concluded. Keep this in mind, Miles, my boy the scientist cautioned, and abide by it. Don't give way to fear in that chamber tonight. If you feel yourself being overcome, fight it. Fight it with all the strength of your will, 
Do as I tell you, and ask no questions. There is danger enough for both of us, if the forces are of great power. If one gives way under such circumstances, anything may result. Insanity, or even death. The three stood in the corridor, just outside the guest room, listening, as a faint sound vibrated through the hush of the corridors, slowly rising and falling, and then diminishing. It seemed faint and far away, deep below the fortress at times, at others, filling the corridors about them with a soft and swishing subtleness. The whisper, breathed Felice, his eyes terror-stricken, as he strained his ears with an intentness that stiffened his entire frame. He turned his haunted gaze to his companions only when the sound had ceased altogether. The Major remained with the two Americans but a short time, and reproached himself on departure that he had permitted them to occupy this deserted portion of the fortress, even for a night. Dr. Littlejohn locked the door and gazed about the large irregular chamber, noting silently the long, drawn-out shadows, which seemed to take their rise in the corner and creep across the floor. Nor did he fail to observe the shadow above his head, a hovering mist midway between the high ceiling and the floor. It was the omen, regarded by psychics as the certain sign of a spectral presence. The scientist drew his electric torch and set himself to feel after what was really wrong with the room, while Miles Cresson remained seated before the log fire which had been kindled earlier in the evening. As Little John passed slowly around the walls, he gradually gathered impressions, very unpleasant ones. These seemed worse than the anteroom of Pepperbox shape, where a sensation of utter loathing and sickness of soul swept over him. He decided that someone in the chamber, though unseen by himself or Cresson, was watching every movement. Little John gazed between the parted curtains for several minutes, then walked to the fireplace to face the southerner. "'Sense anything unusual, Miles?' he asked, wiping his spectacles. "'Feel awfully peculiar, Doctor. Can't say why,' was the young man's reply. "'Keep a cool head, son,' advised Little John. "'We're in for a night of it, and no mistake. Don't cross the center of the floor. If you find it necessary to move, walk around close to the walls, for in the center of a place such as this, a malignant entity is always most powerful. At the walls it is weakest.' Except the flickering shadows, the two men saw nothing in the next two hours. It was well past midnight when both heard the whisper, faint at first, but gradually increasing in tone until it became almost a roar in the corridor outside. They exchanged significant glances and steeled themselves for an ordeal. Without warning, the locked door swung wide and a rush of icy air filled the chamber. The gasping roar of air currents deafened them, the lamp was blown out, its flame vanishing in a puff. "'Keep your back to the wall!' shouted the scientist, hurling aside his deadened electric torch and flinging Cresson back against the masonry. The fire dimmed as it had done on the previous occasion, and the whirring and flopping of unseen creatures raced about the high ceiling. A long-drawn wail rising to a shriek pervaded the chamber, and the fire went out altogether, leaving the room in darkness. Something immense seemed filling the room, something violently hostile and terrible. Globes of greenish-blue light floated through the air and bowled over the floor, and the fetid breath of slobbering things blew against the faces and hands of the Americans. 
The strangling of dying humans seemed to issue from the anteroom, now lit with a pale, ghastly light. The immense entity was coming nearer. They could feel the approach, inch by inch, of something that threatened to overwhelm them. Suddenly, Little John made a mystic sign and pronounced three words in an unknown tongue. He ran rapidly around in a wide circle, scattering a powdered substance about the center of the room where the malignant intelligence hovered. When he reached the starting point again, he stepped forward, pouring a drop of liquid from an odd-shaped vessel of brass drawn from his pocket. The circle sprang into flame, lighting the chamber with a blood-red glow. Little John's eyes glittered straight into something ahead, and his whole being seemed transformed as he drew himself erect and poised. His arm circled his head with the brass vessel as he leapt to the edge of the flaming hoop, reciting a staccato chant. "'Appear!' the scientist screamed. "'Appear! In the name of the Creator, I command you to appear!' A black cloud seemed to fill the center of the red circle. Suddenly both men saw it. A great, shapeless creature was taking the form of a man, so tall that the head was bent against the ceiling. Two burning, baleful eyes were fixed on the pair as a snarling issued from its great black mouth lined with long, jagged teeth. The creature's body was covered with scales. Its powerful arms and toes were armed with long, razor-like claws. Little John steeled his will to prevent the thing's efforts to overcome him with the noxious stench it emitted. It was the beginning of a deadlock of wills which lasted for minutes in that room of damp stone. Cresson saw the doctor, like a sorcerer of old, advance toward the thing, his voice rising and falling, chanting the lines of a Latin incantation. The thing retreated a few feet, only to redouble its efforts to close in on the two men. Little John made the sign of the cross, stamping his feet as he advanced, bidding the entity be gone in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. There was a wail and a sucking noise as it vanished like a flash through the curtains of the anteroom. The door slammed shut and locked. The fire suddenly leapt into blaze again, and the lamp relit with a clear, steady ray. The flaming circle died out. Cresson had fainted. Little John ran to his side as he recovered, staggering weakly into a chair. The southerner was deadly pale and for a few minutes unable to speak. Little John mopped his brow and stood with his back toward the fire. "'It has gone out of the room,' he said at length. "'But it may return any minute. Be on your guard. It is an entity of great power and has not yet completely taken shape. There is no doubt in my mind about it being an elemental freed by some powerful magician in olden times, and set raging by this bloody battleground in the late war. Undoubtedly, black art was practiced in this very room. You must fight against being drawn into the tunnels, for the chances are you would never emerge. The scientist flung himself into a chair, but as he did so, the door opened violently, and again the room was plunged into darkness. Little John placed his back against the wall, but to his dismay, Cresson ran to the center of the chamber, striking and shouting, "'Get away! Get away, I tell you! Get away!' he cried. The young man fought like one possessed, but suddenly his voice changed into a booming, reverberating bass, which filled the atmosphere with echoes. It sounded now in a low, deep chuckle. Above him, Little John saw the round spots of flame that were the creature's eyes. "'Hell, master!' spoke Cresson in deep Flemish. Hail, all-powerful prince of darkness! Lucifer! The tones were not his, the scientist noted. 
as the rumbling voice trailed off into unintelligible gibberings. Little John forgot his own safety and rushed to draw the southerner back. Too late! With a wild shriek, Crescent disappeared at top speed through the door which slammed shut before Little John could follow. He stood still as steely claws sought his neck. He drove these back with the force of his thought. There came to the scientist the realization that Crescent had been snatched from the room by a lesser force, while the greater was centering its power on him. Again he threw out his will, quickly drawing from his vest a golden crucifix, holding it aloft as he began the ancient rites of exorcism. As he prayed, he could feel the power of the entity growing weaker and weaker, until at last it dispelled itself as the distant bugles heralded the coming of day. He concluded his prayer with the benediction, convinced that the evil intelligence had vanished from the fort forever. End of part five.